Hello, and welcome to Tigers in Translation, the podcast that tells Princeton students' stories in their own voices. We hope to build community around language at Princeton and to spark conversations about our experiences. I am Mariam Camel, and today we will hear from Kevin Jung, a member of Princeton's great class of 2023. It was like any Sunday morning. My five-year-old self woke up, got out of bed, and was ready to watch TV and play video games all day. But when I walked out of my room, I knew that my plans would be derailed because my parents were already up and fiddling with my Lightning McQueen backpack, you know, putting loose-leaf paper in my folders and restocking my Ticonderoga number two pencils. I asked, what's going on? But in Cantonese, because that's what my parents spoke. And they joyfully informed me that they enrolled me in a local Chinese school. It was safe to say that I cried throughout the entire car ride. You know, I was already a student with perfect attendance who attended school five days a week, but now I had an additional responsibility of going to school on Sundays too, without my consent. So those tears were justified. I walked into the classroom that day with my parents right behind me like two security guards to ensure that I'd be paying attention in class. And the first thing I noticed was that all the other students were much older than me, which was very intimidating. It was abundantly clear from their, let's say, naughty language that they also didn't want to be there. But I also noticed that they were all Joksing, that is an American whose parents are Chinese immigrants, just like me. The teacher then came in a few moments later, handing each of us a textbook whose title read Pinyin, and immediately started shouting, Bo Po Mo Fo, Di Tin Lu, and expected that we followed along with her. This was when I postulated that my parents must have signed me up for the wrong class, because the seemingly harsh tones that came out of the teacher's mouth did not sound anything like the fluidity and musicality that I associated with Cantonese, my mother tongue. And only a few years later did I realize that my parents had knowingly signed me up for a Mandarin class rather than a Cantonese class. From their perspective, you know, it makes perfect sense. Mandarin is a quickly expanding language that has gained international prestige, while Cantonese is a dialect limited to only Hong Kong and Southeast China. So it is not commonly employed outside of those regions. And in terms of utility, Mandarin could land me employment opportunities in mainland China, where years of industrialization transformed their cities into technological epicenters and allow me to communicate with 15% of the world's population. In my parents' eyes, speaking Mandarin equated with success. Where does that put Cantonese? So for me, this experience revealed some of the fundamental differences within ethnic communities that we tend to oversimplify as one homogenous group. People always assumed that Mandarin and Cantonese must be similar because they're technically dialects. While the written language is identical, the pronunciation and even grammar of the two spoken languages are completely different and the dialects are not mutually intelligible. To me, Mandarin was as foreign as French or German, and it couldn't fully represent my cultural identity. So, here I was in class, surrounded by many students who, 
for once shared my facial features and olive complexion. And from an outsider's point of view, it may seem as if I belonged there. Yet I still felt a sense of alienation, the same uneasy feeling that I experienced in my majority white charter school. I was labeled as an outsider. I spoke a language that only the uneducated would speak in mainland China, deemed inferior to the national standard. And in Hong Kong, Cantonese symbolized disobedience in a communist regime that only promotes Mandarin. And thus, in speaking this language, I bore the weight of all these prejudices and presumptions. Needless to say, I had absolutely no desire to be there. And after a few weeks, my parents stopped taking me to class, probably because it took so much strenuous effort every Sunday morning to drag me out of bed and drive me to school. Deep down, I think they knew they were putting me out of my misery. Interestingly enough, I made the conscious decision to re-enroll in Chinese school, maybe like four or five years later, after there were a few instances in which I couldn't even engage in informal conversation with mainlanders. I stuck with it for quite a long time, but I never felt comfortable there. Maybe because the teachers always tried to eliminate my Cantonese accent. The school just didn't present as a safe space. I felt like I couldn't openly practice my oral skills without the possibility of incurring harsh judgment. And at the same time though, I started taking Spanish classes in middle and high school. And that became of a priority to me. So I, I was never able to reach a proficient level of fluency in Mandarin. And I don't regret it at all. If I had compelled myself to continue studying Chinese, I would have never put myself out of my comfort zone and considered learning Spanish. I think I gained a new perspective of the world through the lens of Hispanic culture and tradition that piqued my interest in simply a way that Mandarin could never have offered. But of course, that's another story for another time. Kevin, for sharing your story. Um, could I please ask you a few more questions about your story? Uh, of course, I'd be happy to. Let's start with uh, what motivated you to tell the story? Uh, yeah, so that day was uh, pretty much a traumatic discovery of the inherent disunity that plagues Chinese immigrant diasporas and many other ethnic minorities in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, this may be surprising, but only because majority-minority relations have often overshadowed the more subtle factors in ethnic communities. And as an American, it's very easy to racially profile minorities based on their nationality. But we must also recognize that there are unique enclaves within each cultural minority that reflect their nation's regional differences in language, religion, and privilege too. And this was most apparent last year when the hashtag Free Hong Kong movement erupted internationally, uh, protesting against China's use of military force to quell demonstrations in Hong Kong. And you would see this conflict, you know, echoed in cities like Vancouver, Sydney, Los Angeles, where there were instances of supporters of man mainland China uh, inhibiting pro-democracy protests or even attacking protesters. And, you know, this is an extreme case, but this shows that behind each overly broad racial label, such as like African-American, Hispanic, Middle Eastern, etc., uh, they are a multitude of different cultural identities fomented by similarly rich histories. Thank you for sharing. Um, 
how has coming to Princeton changed your relationship with language? So I have actually continued with my studies of the Spanish language at Princeton and the class I'm taking right now, uh, SPA 307, a shout out to Professor Mariano Bono, uh, has really challenged me to think critically about how language influences almost every aspect of our cultural and social lives. Uh, and for example, language can be used as a political weapon to discriminate against minority populations, and it can be used to sow discord and create divisions. Uh, we are often characterized by how we talk, uh, allowing us to communicate much more than what we explicitly state, whether that may be intentional or not. And after really focusing on the linguistics behind human speech, I have felt much more self-aware of how I navigate through conversations and how others rely on persuasive tactics to promote their own interests. And having been brought up in a bilingual household where I clumsily juggled of two very distinct languages, it was always more difficult for me to pick up on social cues. But these classes at Princeton have taught me how to command control over language. And it has boosted my confidence when it comes to speaking with strangers or giving presentations. And I find that I have a much healthy relationship with my multilingualism now. And overall, I feel much better about the way I speak. Oh, that's really good to hear. Um, mm -hmm. How do you think your relationship to Cantonese might change in the future? Or will it at all? Yeah, so while I feel like I almost have an obligation to learn Spanish, uh, because I have been so fascinated with Hispanic culture uh, that I've seen growing up in South Florida, um, I've never felt and still don't really feel an urge to improve my Cantonese. And I haven't really considered the ramifications of that until I started attending college. And once again, now, since I'm living in my own apartment for the semester. And every time I spend an extended period of time away from home, my connection with my Chinese heritage becomes somewhat fainter. So like when I speak with my mom on the phone, it's like picking up an instrument that you haven't played in years and you have to fiddle around each of the individual keys. Uh, I can have a simple conversation with her, but I never feel comfortable discussing complex issues with her because I just lack the vocabulary to do so. And, and I fear that I will eventually lose the language altogether, especially because I also plan on studying abroad in Spain, South America, and really focusing on my Spanish. And, and what I fear more is that I will regret not taking action to prevent it. Uh, yeah, I simply just don't have the motivation to preserve my Cantonese. You know, I used to feel guilty about not continuing with my study of the Chinese language, but I've realized that maybe my identity isn't solely defined by my ancestry. And, you know, that's completely fine. Oh, thank you so much for being here today. And we really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Tigers in Translation is supported by the Rapid Response Magic Project of the Princeton University Humanities Council. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you have a story you want to share? You can reach our team at tigersintranslation at gmail.com. Our production team includes Amanda Bond, Tyler Bennett, Londi Hernandez, Mariam Camel, Annika Mascara, and Tanvi Nabonapati. Our faculty advisor is Dr. Sean Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. <laughs>